Acts chapter 17. If you want to be finding that in the church Bibles. And we're going to be starting at verse 16, uh, which is on page 1113 uh, in the Green Church Bibles. And we're going to read uh, to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, uh, page 1113. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Uh, Father, we're so thankful for your word, thankful that you're the, uh, the God who's not very far from each one of us, and that you want us to know you. I, and I pray that you'd help us to see what good news that is for us, and what good news that is for the people around us. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's uh, maybe an obvious question, I don't know, but um, how will people 
uh, around us, people in the world, uh, how do you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, how do you become one? Uh, What needs to happen? Uh, Often, I think, in churches, we know that we want people to know about Jesus, uh, but we tend to think that if we're just really good friends, uh, if we're great neighbours... Uh, if we get to know them and they get to know us, that there'll be this kind of um, osmosis of faith in Jesus. That if I'm nice and kind and reliable and generous, if I'm a great colleague or a great worker, if, I'm, if I do good and, um, you know, open doors for people, literally, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, then, then, then maybe people will see that Jesus is, is worth following. Uh, Some Christians think that, well, if we can just get Christianity um, on the the front foot in the political sphere, uh, if it could be taught properly in schools, or if uh, our prime minister was a Christian, or we had more Christians in parliament, then then maybe the good news about Jesus would be heard by more people. Uh, Maybe just if people could get into church and experience the community with us, they might sense God's presence with us in some way. It's very easy to, to think like that, but uh, Luke wants us to have a different idea in our minds. As good as those things might, may or may not be, and we can debate the, the pros and cons of them, uh, in Acts chapters well, 16, verse 6, through to the end of uh, chapter 19 and then a bit into chapter 20, Luke is reporting to us Paul's ministry to these five cities in the... In, um, uh, in the uh, what is now present-day Turkey, that part of the world. Uh, and Luke is question, um, is, wants to persuade us, to, he wants to give us confidence that Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. Uh, as we look at these chapters, they're not only going to tell us things about Jesus that we're to believe, uh, but are also going to help us to review uh, what we're doing as a church to help other people Uh, know Jesus for themselves. And I think we'll see that as we get into this chapter, uh, sorry, into this section this morning. But before we do that, it's just helpful to keep reminding us of the purpose uh, for which Luke has written. Uh, Just look back at Luke chapter 1. That's a few, quite a few pages back. Uh, If you've got a church Bible, you'll find that on page uh, 1025. And this is, the, this is kind of his introduction to his two volumes of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which we're reading this morning. Luke says, Many have undertaken to draw up account that the things have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by, the, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So his friend Theophilus has heard lots of things about Jesus, and Luke has investigated it, interviewed the eyewitnesses, and drawn up an orderly account so that his friend might know for certain who who Jesus is. But then flick over the few pages back to Acts, chapter 1 this time, as page 1092. Acts chapter 1 page 1092, uh, and listen to how he starts volume two. 
He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And notice that word, began. Uh, He links the two books, doesn't he? Uh, Luke, written for certainty that Jesus has fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, that he's the Christ, that he's the God's promise-rescuing king. And second volume, the book of Acts, the, the, the story written so that we might be certain that Jesus is continuing his work. And as we've gone through the book of Acts over the last few years now, at various points, we've seen that Jesus continues his work through his spirit-filled people as they hold out the message about Jesus to people around them. Uh, Flick back to our pages on uh, um, 1113. See, Luke wants us to be certain that the gospel is making progress. At the beginning of our whole section, which you would have read um, on um, uh, Wednesday or Thursday this week in your community groups, right at the start of the section, um, Luke says this in chapter 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. That's his summary of what has happened since chapter 13. Then in chapter 19, verse 20, he says this, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So our section comes in the middle of a section where Luke is describing how the word of God is growing and spreading with power. So as we look at this section in chapter 17, the question we need to ask ourselves as readers is, how does this give me confidence that this is the way the word spreads and grows? That's what We've got to, and that's the question we've got to answer as we look at this whole section, but particularly 16 to 17. But did you notice, as our, our passage was read, um, that there's a problem? There's a problem in Athens. Uh, look down at 17, verse 17, with me. Uh, Paul does what he normally does. He reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. But then in 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him to the Areopagus, sorry, and they brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? So Paul's doing his usual thing that we've, we've seen, we saw last week. He's telling people about Jesus, showing them that he's the king that's the, promised in the scriptures and that they need to put their trust in him. But this group, this religious elite group, don't get it. They're not, perhaps not used to the Bible, don't understand the scriptures. Uh, they think he's a babbler. They think he's advocating foreign gods. Uh, most scholars think that they think he's presenting two new gods that they can play around with, Jesus and the resurrection, as though those were separate things. They, they, they're unsure of what Paul's doing. And so they bring him to this place called the Areopagus, uh, which in Athens at the time was a bit like a mixture of... Um, uh, it's a bit like a mixture of a, of a Sharia court and the House of Lords. Uh, it's kind of that kind of thing. They're, they're the... The religious leaders of Athens, though it's sort of Greek religions, they're ones that have got great authority to shape Athenian culture. 
Uh, they're the ones that can give the stamp of approval on this new teaching. Is this something useful that we should listen to? So Paul's before this very important select committee. Like, tell us what you've got to say, and we'll decide on whether it's worth listening. What would you say? It's quite a scary thought, isn't it, to be brought before a council like that. But what would you want? You had your opportunity to stand before Rishi Sunak and uh, the, uh, the government. So tell us about Christianity. Why, why should we listen to you? Like, what's the one thing you want people to know about Jesus? What would you say? Uh, just as you maybe just bring to mind as you thought about that question. What is it that you want people to know about Jesus? What do you want them to understand? And I think as you read Paul's speech from verse 22 onwards, it's a bit surprising what he goes for. <laughs> like he calls them ignorant. And he says, you've really got to put your trust in Jesus. He says three things that we're going to think about. The first thing he says is that because of Jesus' resurrection, God says, you can't control me. You can't control me. Uh, We're going to look at that in verses 22 uh, down uh, to 27-ish, 28. You can't control me. Paul recognizes that Athens is very religious. There's lots of religious thinking happening. Uh, And I think we're a lot like Athens of today. Uh, Not in that lots of people go to church. Clearly that's not true anymore. Most people don't go to church and lots of people are leaving church um, every week. But if you know anything about our culture, and maybe you remember that 10 to 15 years ago, um, Professor Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. Uh, It was a book that had lots of fanfare, got onto the New York Times bestseller, was celebrated by many people, uh, including lots of popular atheists like Stephen Fry and others saying, this is the book to read. And in his introduction, Dawkins says, look, I've written this book to show you that because of scientific progress you can ditch belief in God. Uh, he says that my, my, my purpose in writing this uh, book was to persuade uh, not just normal people that religion is something to ditch, uh, but religious people as well. And he expected lots and lots of people like me to read it and give up our jobs uh, and do something different. He'd, he'd nailed the coffin of God, he thought. Well, 15 years on... Uh, like Richard Dawkins is, is nowhere. And actually, religious belief globally is on the rise. I don't mean Christianity in that way, though it is in some parts of the world in remarkable ways, but people haven't ditched religion for atheism. Uh, rather, they're believing all sorts of things now. Uh, one um, commentator, a, a satirist, said this, He's a a, a satirist and a political thinker uh, called Constantin Kissin. He said, the reason that new atheism has lost its mojo is that it has no answers to the lack of meaning and purpose that our post-Christian societies are suffering from. What will fill the void? Religious people have their answer. Do the rest of us? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because instinctively, we live in the world and we know that we can't reduce love and or our anxieties or our innate sense of justice 
to simple survival mechanisms, to chemistry. And so people are turning away from atheism to all sorts of religious beliefs and philosophies. And uh, particularly popular at the minute is sort of vague belief in sort of positive energy. If I, if I can think my future positive, then that's what will happen. Uh, one of my favourite cricketers has a podcast that I listen to, a guy called Jimmy Anderson. Uh, and he talks really openly about the superstitions that are all over the England cricket team. So if there's a particularly tense moment in a game of cricket, they will not leave the seat that they're sat in, just in case they jinx it. So much so that when one uh, cricketer, um, uh, Ben Stokes, made a a, a remarkable um, uh, batting innings a a few seasons ago now in Birmingham, or I think, or Headingley maybe, Um, one guy sat in the toilet and refused to come out because he thought, if I I go out, then Stokesy will will get out and I can't live with that. Like, deadly serious. That's how how they think. He himself talked about that when he's got a bad, has a bad run of form, he, he does all he can, he says, to to get the cricketing gods on his side. So he says he'll deliberately go and sign more autographs around the ground. He'll make sure he does something that week for charity. Uh, Desperate to control the cricketing gods, maybe I'll get some form so that my idol of being successful in cricket will work for me. Now that seems daft, doesn't it? Seems silly. But I think it betrays what a lot of people actually think. That the reason things happen to me is because I haven't done something. I haven't been something. I'm not good enough. So when you listen to people, listen carefully and you'll hear that your friends, they are very religious. Hashtag pray for Ukraine. Or the endless apps offer you to help you have positive thinking to change and shape your future. You have never heard a Disney character sing a song about how we're just atoms floating in a meaningless void of despair, have you? No, those songs are always about meaning and purpose and value. There's a climate crisis because we think this world is worth living in. There's a future worth having. Now, Matt's right. We don't have physical idols and statues, as Paul noticed, in Athens. But ours are really mostly of the mind, aren't they? But we have them because we think we can control God. We think we can live in this world and make it bend and flex to us. That happens all the time. It's the reason you pretend your life is better than it really is. It's the reason that you push away the things that are sad and difficult and never talk about them. Because you want to be in control and you can't cope with the idea that you're not in control. It's not unusual to hear people say, well, yeah, I'm kind of religious, not like you, Steve, but I like to think of God like this. And what they end up saying is that the God that they believe in often turns out to be very much like them. Amazingly, the God that they love is the God that shares their values and their system of the world and never disagrees with them. See what Paul does, though, in Athens. 
Look down at the text in verse 22 with me. He says, look, I can see that you're very religious. I, I can see that you believe in something bigger than yourselves. You've even got this altar to the unknown God. You, you admit that there are things that you don't know. You even know that in him you live, move, and have your being. As some of your own poets have said, I, I can see that to you. But the resurrection of Jesus proves that the God of the Bible is the real God. The God the Bible proclaims is the God that can't be controlled. You can't control him. He won't live in temples that you've made. He's not like a bit of silver that you've made or a stone that you've fashioned or anything like that. No, Jesus' resurrection proves he's the real God, the God who rules us, who made us, who owns us. And we're dependent on him. You can't control him. The God you want, long for and are depending on is found in Jesus. And the resurrection proves it. That's the God that I'm proclaiming to you. And as you read, we haven't got time to do this this morning, but as you read through these verses, and if you want to do this, I can send you this slide. But what you notice is that all the way through, verses um, 24 all the way down to 29, Basically, Paul is teaching the Old Testament to the Athenians. This is who the God of the Bible is. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that that is true. He made everyone. He made everything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. In fact, it's the other way around. You need him to exist. The whole of your life, the whole of the story of your life, is bound up with him. He has written everyone's story. Even your breath is dependent on him. I mean, you might not want to do it now, but try taking control of your breath. Try holding your breath for a bit and see how long you survive without depending on God's kindness to you this morning. 30 seconds? See, Paul's doing exactly what he did in the synagogue. See, like he might not have had a Bible open and said, you know this story, don't you? But he is teaching them the scriptures. He's teaching them about who God is based on the fact that Jesus has come into the world. Jesus is the living proof that the God of the Bible is the God that you can't control. You live in his world. You're dependent on him. And that's the message that we've got to proclaim. That's what, that's what people need to know about Jesus, don't they? It's wonderfully true that knowing Jesus means a great, it's great to be part of his community. It's lovely. Good friendships, deep friendships. People being kind to one another and doing good things for the marginalised in society. It's a wonderful thing to belong to. It is wonderful that knowing Jesus changes your identity and gives you security in yourself so you don't need to worry about what you look like and can live with meaning and purpose and don't have to chase success. But the reality is that for a lot of people, they think that that's true of other things too. There's nothing really unique about that. It might be false and misguided, but we've got to then present Jesus as the king, the one that you can't control. He's not one option amongst many. 
He's not someone you can tag onto your life to make it feel a bit better, to get through a difficult day. He's the Lord. There's a question for you to think about. As you think about the people you'd love to know about Jesus, and as you think about what do they make of your life, do they see your faith in Jesus as one option amongst many options for them? Or do they see you living as though no, only Jesus is Lord? I find that challenging. See, God can't be controlled. But secondly, God says, because of the resurrection, you can come and know me. You can come and know me. The God of the Bible doesn't need us to serve him, but he does want us to know him. That's what the second point that Paul makes uh, in this passage. Look down at verse 27. Uh, God has put you... Sorry, verse 26. God has put you in the place that you live so that you might reach out to him and find him. That's what the verse says, doesn't it? From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. God wants you to know him. And it's remarkable that he should be like that. Because as Matt prayed earlier, it's true that we diminish God at every turn. The God that we want to be, the God that... We kind of believe in in our hearts, but we, we diminish and we turn him into the things of this world. But Paul says, look, our spiritual hunger is actually evidence that God's not far from any one of us. That we've been made by him in his image that we might know him and be in relationship with him. And the proof, he says, is the resurrection of Jesus. That's how he ends his talk, isn't it? Jesus' death and resurrection proves that God wants us to know him. Because if Jesus is the God who's really there, then Jesus reveals to us a God not who's distant and far away and demanding us to be a certain way in order to earn his affection. No, the God that Jesus reveals is one who's come into our humanity to demonstrate his love for us. to take the death that we deserve for our diminishing of God, for our refusal to live with him in charge, in in himself, in the cross, and then been raised as the new man of humanity that we might share in a new humanity as we were created to, to, to know God for ourselves. That's what the resurrection proves, Paul says. Now, I know that the idea that you can't control God is, is really scary, isn't it? Like it's scary that your money won't save you or that your success will one day fail you or that as good as your marriage might be, one day you will stand at the graveside. In the best marriages, one of you will anyway. Like to really let go of the reins of your life and say someone else is in charge. Like that's terrifying. It is scary. 
But the resurrection says, look, the one that you're giving the reins to is the one who's laid down his life for you. The God who has all authority over every aspect of your life is the one who uses his authority and his power to serve you, to give you life. There's no safer arms. We sang that in that brilliant kids song earlier, didn't it? Jesus is the safe place. He's the only safe place. Friends, you know that your money, it won't die for you, will you? However beautiful your house is, it won't sacrifice itself for you. However together your family are, they're only together because you're, you're hiding them from the difficult bits, aren't you? You're pretending they're not really there. You can think positively all you like, but you know that shame and guilt, they're never really that far away. Particularly in those moments when you turn the light out and you're left to your own thoughts, you know that positive thinking isn't doing it. Buddha, yoga, they're not going to help. Now, however much you give to them, your perfectly raised children, they won't bring you lasting happiness. All the things that we desperately cling to, saying there's significance, there's security, there's hope and happiness, one day will let us down. And definitely at the graveside. They either bury you or you leave them all behind as you're buried. But Jesus says, I've come to serve you. I know you all the way to the bottom, Jesus says. I know how weak you are. I know how fearful you are. I know how selfish you are. I know how guilty you are. I know how ashamed you are. And I've died and been raised from life so that you might share my resurrection life forever. All that is mine I give to you, says Jesus. All that I am I share with you, says Jesus as we trust him. You can read about that in the Gospels if you want. And the resurrection says it's all true because Jesus has been raised. See, God says, come and know me. You can't control me, but you can come and know me. Which means, finally, God says, you've got to change your mind. That's where Paul ends, isn't it? Let's look down at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made to look by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice... By the man he has appointed, he's given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is proof in history that you'll face him one day. That's what Paul says. Now, the idea of judgment, if you're a Christian here, and if you're not, the idea of future judgment is something... Well, we like to keep it in the bottom drawer when we're speaking to people, don't we? Like, we'll talk about Jesus loves you, Jesus forgives you, Jesus is wonderful. But that you'll face him as your judge is it's bottom drawer. I mean, that question, what do you want your friends to know about Jesus? Hands up who said, I want them to know that they're facing him as their judge. 
Anyone say that? No, neither me. But that's where Paul ends his talk. Because of who Jesus is, today is the day of salvation. Now, I know that we might wince at that idea, but think about it. Think about it. We love judgment. Let me persuade you that you love judgment. If you love the film Shawshank Redemption, you love that film because Andy Dufresne takes down the warden, doesn't he? Sorry if I've ruined that for you, but you should have seen it by now. We love the story of someone bad getting their just desserts. They're our favorite stories. Like Shawshank Redemption wouldn't be the film it is if he scratched away at the wall and someone found it and said, what are you doing? Well, just move cell. That's not a great film, is it? (laughs) Or think about Lucy Letby and how we described her as, and rightly so, as evil for the way that she killed those babies on that maternity ward. And think about the discussion around that, her judgment and the idea that she didn't face her accusers when she was sentenced. People want justice. We long for justice. Hashtag me too. That's why we've got investigative journalists. We want the truth to come out. We're desperate for it. Who is responsible for the school buildings crumbling around our children? Like, we want judgment. Our our problem isn't judgment. Our problem's pride. That's the problem. Because for Jesus to be the judge, the one who has supreme power and authority, who's used all of that power and authority to serve others and his enemies, he's the one judging us. With justice, Paul says. Which means that we're all in a bit of trouble. We can't look at Jesus and think we'll, we'll get to his standard. We'll be all right. Like, it's easy to look at Lucy Letby and say, well, I'm not as bad as her. No, don't think, well, I'm not as bad as that person, therefore I'll be safe with God. No, look at Jesus, see his perfect life and think, right, there's the standard. That's the standard I'm going to be faced with. The day when everything is brought out into the open. Everything. Every stone unturned. Every time you've hidden or deleted your internet history. However it is that you're trying to hide. Like Jesus, he's just seen it all. And he loves you anyway. <laughs> but you will be held account. You'll stand before him as a judge. The resurrection proves it. The resurrection in history says there's a future day that will stand before Jesus. Every single one of us. I don't know when that date is. Jesus says he himself didn't know, but only the Father knows when he's given that day. But it is in your diary somewhere. It's there. You're meeting him. You'll come face to face with the ultimate self giving, loving king of the universe. And you'll stand before him and his scars will be there on his hands and the wound in his side. 
And you say, like, what are you trusting in today? Where's your hope for this moment? See, the resurrection of Jesus says that what the Bible says about God is true, that he made us for himself, that we can't control him, that we diminish and distance ourselves from him all the time, but that he loves us and wants us to know him and that we will face him one day. So you've got to change your mind. Now, you could leave here this morning continuing to, to diminish God, pushing him away. Let's not talk about it around the dinner table today. The problem is, Jesus is alive. And there's a date in your diary. And are you ready? That's the message Paul preached in those five cities. Whether it's before the synagogue and people who knew the Bible well, or whether it's in the Areopagus, standing before people that didn't know the Bible well, same message, Jesus is God's rescuing king. And he's alive, and he's coming to judge. Repent and believe. It's the same message Peter gave. It's the same message Stephen gave in Acts chapter 7. And it's the message that we're commissioned as a church to make known in our community with our friends. We need to do it gently, thoughtfully, wisely, personalize it, I guess. This is what Paul kind of does in Athens, doesn't he? He wants these people to understand about Jesus, so he's careful in how he speaks to them. But it is the same message. It's a message that we've got to hear and learn and understand. That's how Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Now, it's really good to, to know people well. It's really good to get, take time in getting to understand those around us. It's great to be a good neighbor and a wonderful friend. But friends, they've got to hear about Jesus if they're going to be safe on that last day. See, Paul met these people for the first time. And what's his first thing that he wants them to to know is, you've got to do business with Jesus. He doesn't set up a little community group so they might come in and get to know him a bit and see he's a really good guy and then I'll tell him about Jesus. No, you need to know. You can't control God. God wants to know you, and he's coming to judge. And there's a safe, there's a safe way to know him, and it's through trusting in the son who's come. Finally, just very, very briefly, there's a, there's a reaction that's a bit scary, but also encouraging. Verse 32. When some of them heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You will get mocked. People think it's funny what we believe. That's okay. Some of your friends will want to hear you again, like... Can you explain that a bit more? Unpack that a bit more. And that's wonderful too. But some of them will believe. Even one of this council said, you know what? 
I'm persuaded. I'm going to come with you, Paul. If the band wants to come up, and we'll pray that we'd be faithful proclaimers of this message. But before we're proclaimers, that we're faithful in, in obeying this message, that our lives would be those that lived out with Jesus um, as Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've been really clear with us. You've made yourself known as the God that we can't control. And wonderfully, not just that, but the God that despite our refusal to let you control and all that we deserve because of that is the God who wants to be known, wants us to know how loved we are. Thank you that in Jesus there's that, we see such wonderful, wonderful love as you take the death that we deserve and offer to give us the life that we don't deserve forever just by trusting in you and following you. Please would you help us this morning to turn around from trusting in the things that can't, can't deliver what we want but to put our trust in Jesus and ask it in his name. Amen.